Hello, everyone. I am uh, Claudio Murgan, the host of the Spiritually Inspired Podcast. And uh, my guest um, today is Dr. Christina Cleveland. Um, Christina, a PhD, a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist, is the founder and director of the Center for Justice Plus Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journeys toward liberation. An award-winning researcher and former professor at Duke University's Divinity School, Christina lives in Boston, Massachusetts, and she's the author of the book, God is a Black Woman. Uh, Dr. Cleveland, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, it's a joy to be here. Uh, you know what, I read your book and I have to admit that you're very courageous to be so honest and open with um, what happened to you, the challenges uh, you went through since you were four years old and then continued through your teens and adulthood. I mean, not many people have the, the gumption to, to do that, uh, to do what you did. So why did you stay in that field of, let's say, religious field? Uh, in after you, you have so many, so much pain through that experience. So why 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 am I still engaged in religious work? Correct. Or, yeah. mm. Well, I think I discovered on my journey that my problem isn't necessarily spirituality. It's when spirituality is used to abuse people and to have power over people. And so my journey enabled me to connect with a form of spirituality that's somewhat different than the one that I inherited as a child, but I find really life-giving. And so I wouldn't say I'm particularly religious because I think of religion as more institutional and um, with um, more, like more connected to patriarchy, yes. <laughs> um, but certainly spiritual. I feel more spiritual than I ever have been. And um... Touching on your book, as I mentioned, God is a Black Woman, um, and I know you talk at length about the um, uh, white male God. So do you think the idea of a non-white Jesus should come from the church itself as a rectification of history? Will mm. that fly with the, the clergy and the churchgoers? <laughs> well, I'm certainly not expecting it. <laughs> um, I think... Um, yeah, I mean, here here in the United States context, any real apology from institutions for anything, right? Enslavement of Black people, the genocide of Indigenous people, like it's unlikely that those things are ever going to really happen, you know? And so I think of the church as, the institutional church is really similar to government or any other institution that's invested in maintaining its power. So while I would love for, you know, the institutional church to say, hey, we've been historically inaccurate since, you know, at least the 1500s, <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but, but I still think that as individuals, we can take our power back by saying, I'm going to claim whatever aspect of Jesus feels good to me. And I think growing up, that was the power that was stolen from me. I was taught, you have to just believe whatever you've been taught and actually faithfulness and holiness means never questioning anything. And so even though I'm a, a pretty smart person and I was learning to be intellectually curious in my academic world and my spiritual world, I was being taught basically don't ask any questions or else you're not only wrong, you're a morally bad person, which to get to kind of the, the, the way that, morality is added to it is actually quite scary and when you grow up in a family like mine in a church like mine where being a bad person morally means you'll go to hell and be damned by god <laughs> so there's a reason why people don't ask questions because they're afraid yes i mean religion play a very small almost insignificant role in my upbringing through through my family um so um only later in life i i discovered the the, the spiritual side of um ourselves pretty much of myself um and i try to um uh, understand the the differences between religion and, and spirituality and the more i read i understood that there is a gap there which the, the church doesn't want to to breach and has no intention of looking at new historical proof that will diminish the old teachings and the 
what you said, the um, uh, power over their people. So mm -hmm. we're churchgoers pretty much. Yeah, I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, spirituality is empowering because the idea is everyone can be spiritual. Everyone can connect with the divine, the universe, whatever, whatever we're thinking of in terms of spirituality. And that means that they're empowered to make their own decisions and we can't control them as easily. <laughs> and so, you know, in a lot of religious contexts, that's um, seen as a threat. Yes, and that certainly was the case for me growing up, you know, in both my home and in my church. It was like the pastor, the father, they were right. They had access to spiritual, you know, their spirituality was the only one that mattered. And um, we weren't encouraged to connect with the earth or the universe or the divine on our own. Um, yes. And going back to the idea of um, church apologizing or any other body apologizing for what happened in the past. I mean, now and then we see a politician coming forward mm -hmm. and doing such thing, but at the back, they just do the opposite of what they just said. So there right. is a lot of hypocrisy, yeah. mm -hmm. both at the government level and I think at the, the, the church level as well. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, here in the US, you know, the government might might make an apology for scientific experiments that were done on black Americans, but they aren't going to actually do anything systemically to change that that's, you know, some of those issues. <laughs> so it's almost like a performance, you know, like, oh, we're so sorry, but it's okay. We just, we just, now I'm aware of that. And then I just go about my own work. <laughs> yeah. I think we are in a point of time in our evolution as uh, human beings where um, what doesn't vibrate with us will be left behind. Mm -hmm. And the other, the other ones will, will evolve somehow. will move into, you know, different dimension, different type of vibration. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's going on with us uh, right now will become insignificant and we let these guys be in their own swamp, stay there if they don't want to, to see what's going on and evolve. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so interesting. I think that's a really beautiful way to put it. And um, I remember when I was younger talking with a woman who was a provost at a Catholic university. She was a feminist. And I kept talking with her and thinking, how can you possibly be committed to this institution, this Catholic institution that will not let someone like you become a priest? You know, like you obviously, you know, because of course she very much believed in equality for women as a feminist, but, and she just kept, you know, she, but she, she remained in these, in this institution. And I said, why? And I was like, don't you, don't those bishops just drive you crazy? And she just said, mm, the bishops will die. <laughs> <laughs> And it's funny because on the one hand, it's a little morbid, right? It's like, okay, like, are you planning on killing them? You know, like, I had questions. But on the other hand, it's this very much idea that like, you know, there's a big picture. And if I just focus on what these men, these little men are doing, um, I can't live my life, which is to be bringing more people into my spirituality, you know? And so it's just like, like, Hey, maybe we'll just let them stay in the swamps as you say, <laughs> you know, and the rest of us will move forward. Those of us who want to. Yes. So let's go a little bit uh, deeper into your book. God is a black woman. What determined you to, to write the book? <laughs> Why about the black Madonnas? And as I shared to you uh, privately, the only black Madonna I saw was in Spain at Montserrat, mm -hmm. a very uh, interesting monastery. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, again, my first, my first time, and I was, um, it was quite an, an impact to, um, to see it. And in fact, to see that it's been accepted by mm -hmm. those visiting the, the monastery. And it was a lineup for, for people to touch and pray in her mm -hmm. presence. She's a very famous one, yeah. And when I went on pilgrimage to her a few years ago, I was amazed at how many people were there, you know, but as you know, as you may be experienced yourself, they're very powerful. When you see them, there's something like, there's a vibe, there's an energy that they have, um, which is pretty amazing. But, you know, I got connected to the black Madonna cause I was desperate. I had grown up in this really religious context. I had been teaching at seminaries and, you know, was really in that world. And then um, Trump got elected. And I had already been aware of the problem of white Jesus. 
because um, I had gone through the Black Lives Matter movement as a millennial and I'd been really involved in activism and I, I could make the connection between a white God and the devaluing of black bodies, you know? Um, but it was when Trump got elected and or the run up to, you know, Trump getting elected in 2016, where I realized, you know, we don't just have a problem with God's gen God's race. We have a problem with God's gender too. And the fact that women's bodies were being devalued. And so I was desperate. I would literally, I, maybe a Google search, you know, but I was just like, I need to see images of God that are not white and male. And pretty quickly I found the black Madonna, you know, I, I grew up Protestant. So, you know, we were taught that Catholics were wrong at best and evil at worst, <laughs> you know? So I was not even thinking about the black Madonna, but as soon as I saw pictures, and this is common, you know, where people are like, I was just, you know, in Barcelona and I decided to go on this tourist thing to go see the black Madonna Montserrat. And I was amazed at how much I felt when I was there, you know, just looking at the pictures, my entire body changed. I exhaled and I realized, oh, I think I've been holding my breath my whole life. And to just see as a black woman, to see sacred images of black womanhood, and then to read and realize around the globe and for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, people have turned to these sacred black women for support, healing, refuge. And so all of a sudden I went from feeling really alone in the world to just accompanied by not only these black Madonnas, but all the people who have been moved by them and touched by them. And um, yeah, I mean, it was just a really transformative experience. So, you know, I'm a scholar, so I read a bunch of books, <laughs> but um, I, eventually I just wanted to go see them. And so that's when about two years after I first started studying them, I just got on a plane. I don't speak French. <laughs> <laughs> but I went to France for five weeks and I just walked and walked and walked and visited as many as I could. And it ended up being 18. Um, and every single one of them was just, they all, you know, they each have stories and they each have their own people who venerate them. And so I got to know them. I got to know their stories and I got to know the people who love them and their histories. And it's really beautiful. So it is a healing pilgrimage, in other words. Very <clears throat> yeah, you know, I mean, as you mentioned in my book, like I've had a lot of really intense experiences, both in the home and outside of the home that were painful. And, um, you know, as a spiritual person, and as someone who was seeking hope, I was constantly wondering, is there hope? Like, is there some sort of being energy outside of out, you know, out in the world that I can turn to that understands me that sees me and kind of makes me um think a bit about martin luther king jr i when i was teaching at duke university i taught a martin luther king and malcolm x class a few times and i love both of their spiritualities both of them but you know specifically martin luther king said you know that the the arc is long the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Like if ultimately the universe is a friendly place. Ultimately the universe is a loving place. And I could not believe that because of the way that I had been raised with my spirituality. And so being on that pilgrimage really helped me connect with that broader, more mystical truth <laughs> that yes, there is a, an image of a divine being gets me and sees me and understands my experience as a black woman. Yeah, so in fact you resonated with the black with the black Madonna, others resonate with that or with Jesus or with other personification of God. So in Hindu, God takes multiple forms like Rama, Absolutely. Ganesha, Shivu, Vishnu, Krishna and many Holy. many more. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Because it's easier for those guys over there to see that personification and pray to that personification of God. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it gives them focus. And is this a better approach to the debate of God's sex and uh, sorry, gender and uh, look? Yeah. So to have this sort of polytheistic um, view where God can show up in all these different bodies and genders. So, I mean, that certainly can be, po you know, positive. I think the, um, 
I, th I think whether it's whether it's polytheism or monotheism, there's always going to be the question of hierarchy. And even within the pantheon of gods in Hinduism, there is a hierarchy, right? And so there are some that are more powerful or more important than others, which is sort of the issue we have with Christianity, with monotheism, where some attributes of God are elevated over yeah. other ones. You know? So I'm not sure that just having more gods fixes that problem of patriarchy and white supremacy, you know, but I certainly love how in, you know, Hinduism and several and in certainly indigenous spirituality, including West African spiritualities, the idea that you can connect with lots of different energies, some being male, some being female, some being like both and, you know, being what we would call trans right. um, is really powerful to me, because I do think that when we are able to find ourselves in the divine, we can heal in a way that helps us see other people as divine. And I think that's the goal, right? Like yes. I, I, I don't want to just fix myself. I want to be able to see myself in all of my beauty and wholeness so that then I can see people, even my enemies in all of their beauty and wholeness and to extend love and truth them. And I remember um, a few years ago before the pandemic, I was traveling in Palestine and I was spending some time with some Palestinian activists. And one of them said, if I can't, I, I fight to see God in the Israeli soldiers, because if I can't see God in the Israeli soldiers that are my enemy, I can't see God in myself. And so I think ultimately I want us to all be able to see ourselves in God or in the divine so that we can really practice peace. So because you mentioned Palestine and I recently posted something about uh, them and the genocide that's going on there and in Yemen and other parts of the world, mm -hmm. do they still have hope that somehow the international community will shed some light and take action? on on what's going on yeah i mean i i don't know if i i hope you know gosh i hope that they have some hope there i i know personally lots of people who are doing activism work here in the west uh, that's pro-palestinian um i don't know if i know anyone personally who's doing work with with the yemeni but um i mean i think that's part of why me connecting with God as a black woman has been so important for me because it's expanded my advocacy and my activism work <laughs> to go. Cause once I, once I realized that God is not a white male God <laughs> and God cares about black women, then I have to start looking at everyone else who's been marginalized and also realize God stands with them too. And so my whole world has expanded in terms of activism and that's part of the reason why i've spent time in palestine is because i've wanted to you know do work on the ground and also bring that work back to the united states and share but yeah. Yeah. so palestine for me um is like international law being very selective so exactly. if a military power has political or economical interest in a country that breaks such law the pressure for the international community is to look the other way Totally. Yep. So then I made the, the parallel with the religion because mm -hmm. religion is very selective as well and gives the, as you said, the, the white male God priests or religious people an excuse to pretty much plunder or oppress. Mm -hmm. Is that That's such a good a point? Fair... Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, that, I hadn't thought about it that way, but you're right. Yeah. I think I would agree with that, that there's this like um, exceptions are being made for some people. Right. And so what's interesting is that I mean, you see oppression in all the major religions, right? Gender oppression, racial oppression, that kind of stuff. And you look at the actual texts, you know, like Quran. Like if you look at the actual text, you're like, this is love and beauty. For and same thing with the with the Judeo-Christian Bible. For the most part, you see for the most part. For, for the, the most, most part. part. Yeah. But also, I mean, all these texts are so old too that, like, you know, but yeah, but all of them have these sorts of like these incredibly be beautiful and compassionate passages. And then you wonder, well, how come no one's <laughs> forcing people to live that way? Because this exception is being made, right? Same as international law, where for the most part, it's good. 
<laughs> but not everyone's held to that standard. Exactly. And in fact, today I watched a um, old um, workshop of um, Greg Braden's in which she was explaining, she was making the parallel between the existing uh, Bible, uh, King James 1611 version, to what was discovered in Nag Hammadi's uh, library or the, the Dead Sea Scroll. And he said, look, the translation is totally twisted or words were taken out out of context. So you don't understand that the God is within you mm -hmm. and you can attain whatever you put your mind to. Mm -hmm. um, so they want control and they wanted control since then. Absolutely. So please go back to this old text or the new the old text being discovered and read and educate exactly. yourself. Exactly. You know, and it's funny because um, there are people who are comparative religious scholars who are going back and looking at, like, for example, Jesus's words, which were spoken in the mystical Aramaic, which is, a, which is only a spoken language. And so, but then they were written down in Greek, which is a very politicized, um, cut and dry, black and white. Whereas the mystical Aramaic is like possibility and the, 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 the hearer gets to play a role in how it's interpreted. It and has it's nuances, about, yes. About relationship, right? And so just seeing how the words that Jesus spoke were automatically translated into Greek. And then, we're and then for the political project, King James were translated into English from the Greek. So we're already missing two layers. We're already two degrees away from what, what Jesus actually said, you know? And so then at that point, you know, on my journey as someone who was taught to believe the words of Jesus verbatim from the Bible, you know, it brought up a lot of um, questioning and gray area for me. Like who is the historical Jesus? If even what, you know, if, if it's so clear that there's layers and layers of manipulation and, po and political um, translation. <laughs> yes. And so then that's why I think it's even more important for people like me to go on journeys and have our own experiences with the divine and to say, my experience out on pilgrimage with the Black Madonnas or out in my garden where I'm experiencing the abundance of the earth, that's just as important, if not more important than what I have been taught. You know, that's how we take our power back is by saying, sure, I can still interact with the Holy scriptures, but I need to also really take seriously what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling in a situation. Yes, uh, contemporary mystic, um, which I read a lot about, uh, is uh, Lars Mule from Denmark. Oh, I and know okay. Yes, a very interesting person. He spent time in, in Israel. He goes there. He used to go there every year and um, do a ceremony in one of the, the caves mm -hmm. in the desert. And mm -hmm. uh, he's also a musician. Mm -hmm. And uh, he studied Aramaic. He learned Aramaic. Right. And he was <laughs> able to translate mm -hmm. directly from Aramaic. And I have his books. And he brings a different light to... Uh, to the teachings yeah and uh, <clears throat> you can email me those books i will read them because i'm so i'm so interested in well i think now that i've like gone a little bit on my journey for a while there i was just like anything that's to do with christianity i don't want to hear <laughs> you know but now that i'm a little bit further on my journey i'm really curious like what what part of that lineage can I still carry with me? I know there's a lot of it that it's burn it down. <laughs> you know what I mean? But what are the elements that are just wise and generous and loving? And so the more I can connect with some of those like reclamations, that sounds like Lars, what was his last name? Lars Muhl, M-U-H-L. M-U-H-L, okay, cool, yeah. That sounds wonderful, thank you. Yes, I mean, he talks about uh, Mary Magdalene in a totally different light than uh, what the um, secular teachings uh, tell us. And um, it's very, very interesting. I think it will be uh, revealing for, for you, which are in this, this field. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, in your book, you mentioned about uh, Christian uh, mystics, which were aware that the Christ concept mm -hmm. um, held both, um, hold both, uh, female and male mm -hmm. um, 
we are pretty much in, in balance these days. Do you think that will come a time where we can reconcile and get back this, this balance? Oh, gosh, I hope so. I mean, again, <laughs> I'm sure there are there are lots of powers that will that will work against that. Right. But um, I think I mean, I think there a lot of the contemporary mystics are saying now that there's a return of the divine feminine, like the divine feminine is rising. And um, I think I agree with that. You know, I think for, for those of us who have ears to hear, for those of us who want to be transformed, I think that there are lots of books being written, conversations being ha had, and then also the whole conversation about the earth and climate change that's bringing our attention back to the sacred feminine ways. And I think my, my hope is that those of us who connect with that um, stream go back and reclaim sacred masculinity from, from patriarchy because there's a divine masculine way that's so needed, but it needs to be healed from what it has turned into. And I've found that on my own personal journey, we have, you know, I, at first, again, kind of similar to my like views on Christianity, it was like, oh, anything that has to do with men, like, I don't want to deal with it. I'm just getting, it's just me and the Black Madonnas, you know, but the more that I heal my own sacred femininity, the more I'm interested in also healing my sacred masculinity, which lives within me. And it's not all toxic. And actually there's so much healing that comes from the more masculine ways of being in the world, which I think all of us embody. So, you know, I hope that I continue on that journey and that as a society, we continue on that journey. And I do feel like there are more opportunities to grow in that if, if we want to compared to even 20 years ago. Yes. And I think it's more on, on the masculine side um, to understand that we need also the feminine side, the more subtler and softer side uh, yes. in our relationship with, with our family, with our friends, and even with a stranger on the street. Um, exactly. and, and that's very, very important. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I, I, the less I started playing defense, you know, like, and was able to heal enough so I could say, I want to be as creative in the world as I possibly can be. What sorts of tools and characteristics do I need? The more I'm like, yeah, I need that masculine energy just as much as I need that feminine energy. So I can relate to what you're saying. Yeah. To quote from your book, the God that sees and affirms you. Where are you now in that journey? <laughs> right, yeah. Um, you know, always evolving. Um, I, I said at the end of the book that, you know, the Black Madonna, um, it was just the gateway for me. It, it, it felt safe in a sense, because it was like, well, it's just over in Catholicism. It's pretty close to Protestantism, you know. But, you know, that gateway has opened up to the Kali's of the world and to the Yoruba goddesses and to Candomblé, which is like a um, Brazilian Yoruba Catholic sort of yummy mix of different religions. And so right now I'm really interested in just seeing the divine feminine in indigenous communities and also in some of the more established um, religious communities like Tara and Buddhism or something like that. And then also this marriage of the masculine and the feminine, like where am I seeing divine masculinity showing up? And so the God who sees me is now a God who sees everyone. And it's really important for me to connect with the divine beings of people who are the most marginalized. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I mean, and that journey, you know, it's always, you're always going. <laughs> it will be interesting for you to um, meet or even have a chat with uh, Sophia Anaya. She, she's English, but she lives mm -hmm. in Southern France in the mm -hmm. area where the Qatars used to live. And yeah. the interesting part is that she bought a property where Lars Mule was initiated by his seer, by his teacher. Wow. So there is a lot of connection, a lot of energies. And uh, the Pyrenees mountains there hold a lot of um, energies and portals. So I think for you having another um, uh, walk uh, through nature yeah. in that part of yeah. France will be beneficial. Yeah. Right? I know. There's always more. It's like, ah, bring it on, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you brought uh, Black Madonna from France. Do you still draw energy from her? 
I do. Um, you know, I'm actually out in California visiting friends for a couple of weeks, but she lives in my home and I, um, I'm amazed at how much I talk with her and dance with her and just look over and see her. And yeah, I mean, it's the, these black Madonnas, um, you know, it's, I think it's very, it's very Catholic to carry something with you, <laughs> you know, like Catholics often have a necklace or a little statue or something like that. And, and I love that, like very visceral connection to sacred, to sacredness, to carry a sacred object. And so, you know, I think these, you know, a lot of these black Madonnas, they've been that for people in their homes for so many years and they just carry that energy with them. Whereas I feel like in the, in the American context, we're so in our head. And so like, we don't really think necessarily as objects. We don't think of objects as like inherently sacred. So it's nice to have one with me. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting that you found it almost on the last day before you left, something like that, correct? Uh, it's almost like, it feels to me like there are a couple important things that were happening. One, that reassurance of like, I'm not going home alone. Because what was really challenging about the pilgrimage that I don't talk about in the book is that at each of these transformative moments, I was realizing, okay, this is all happening here in France, but I'm going to have to make some real decisions when I get home. I can either leave this in France and just kind of have, oh, that was a cute experience, or I can go home and actually believe and live as if I believe that God is a Black woman, which would mean ending some relationships that were just not life-giving, long-term important relationships, you know, quitting my job at Duke, which I ended up doing about six months later, you know, just all of these things. And I'm not saying that it has to look that way for everyone, but I knew for me, my healing journey was going to require that. And so I, it was, I was scared to leave my pilgrimage because it meant now this is the real pilgrimage, <laughs> you know, now this is the, to integrate it into my life back in the U.S., and to, to, to take these experiences and make them have a real impact on my life. Because I think that's the challenge, you know, growing up with such a transcendent view of spirituality. It was always like, yeah, you go off to camp or the desert place or this one retreat and you have your moment, but then you go back to your life and your life looks exactly the same. Whereas I think the divine feminine teaching is integration. It's eminence. It's like our bodies are going to change. Our practices are going to change. And so I was quite scared to go home. So I felt lucky that that day, I, the night, the last night, I found this black Madonna and it was almost like this reminder, I'm still with you. I know there's still so much more healing for you and hard decisions. And the journey has really just begun. <laughs> and yet I'm with you. So that was really beautiful. But then also, um, and this is something I didn't talk about in the book, but it's something I've reflected on a lot. It also felt like um, she was passing the baton. Um, she was allowing my father, who had been this like really big spiritual authority in my life, to pass the baton to her. And so it's even, he even helps me get her home in this really beautiful interaction. But really to me, what that felt was my dad letting go and then allowing me, her to be my new parent, you know, where it's like now, rather than looking to this sort of earthly human figure for all the authority, I was free to just be with her. And so it felt very symbolic in that in that respect too and so yeah and now i'll give you my my interpretation Go for it was it. like yeah. madonna was waiting to manifest herself only after you ended the pilgrimage and you touch on certain or specific sites where she was present mm -hmm. and she wanted to see how you interact with her uh, at these locations before as i said she will manifest to you and give herself to you to take her home. Oh, that's beautiful too. Yeah, it's amazing just to feel so, like in every way and all the interpretations just to feel so cared for, you know? And um, seen, again, the God who sees me, who's paying attention to what I'm doing on my journey and is um, asking the questions and being attentive, like, like a parent, you know, like a loving parent which is just so beautiful after having this like father sky God, who was kind of like, oh, I can't be bothered with you. <laughs> you know? 
but let's see in the um, indigenous traditions based mm -hmm. on what i read the father sky god mm -hmm. was a very caring one absolutely they, they yes. believed in him and they were looking up to him because he was addressing their needs a hundred percent yeah i mean it's really only since patriarchy that the sky has been seen as distant from us and distant from god you know and um or sorry distant from what's happening on the earth yeah i was um yeah, I think I mentioned that just ever so briefly in the book, because a lot of Matthew Fox's work has looked at some of those like indigenous spiritualities around Father Sky God, who was loving and caring and watchful. And um, it was that the, the, the sky was a friendly place, you know, um, as opposed to the, the way we think of it now, where it's like we think of the sky and it's like a mountain with Zeus on top. <laughs> you know? Yes, because they're looking up to the sky on a daily basis. Now we look into our phones continuously, mm. so we don't look up. That's that's the difference. That's why mm. we think maybe the sky is, is scary these days. Yeah, and you know, um, I wrote most of the book when, um, in 2020 during the pandemic, um, and I was living in Taos, New Mexico, which is like the Northern high, high, high desert um, of New Mexico, and out there, this, I've never seen a bigger sky in my whole life. And that was the first time I went for walks almost every day, really long walks. And that was the first time I ever associated the sky with like abundance and spaciousness and in a, in, in the, its vastness felt so accommodating. And maybe part of it was like, we were home so much that it was nice to just be out under this big blue sky. And, you know, but it's true. Like so often we commute, we interact with the sky um, as if it's a threat or a scary place. Yeah. And also the indigenous people know when to interpret, uh, interpret God as mother and when to interpret it as father. So mm -hmm. they had that bivalence or um, uh, that knowledge, inner knowledge of how to, to treat God in his feminine and masculine aspects. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, and what, what I love about that is the inner knowing. What I need now is God the Father, or what, I, what this community needs now is God the Mother. That's so, to be able to trust your intuition that way, to, to have an intuition that's that in tune, and then to be able to trust it and call in the God that you need I feel like that's very empowering, very empowering. Yes, I mean, our intuition was dumbed down uh, over the years and uh, um, the power that be don't want us to, to awaken to that intuition and to the connection with uh, the divinity. At least this is my personal um, point of view and uh, I, stand, I stand by it, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. I love that idea though, you know, to, and I think the more I've gotten connected to the sacred feminine, the more, and the sacred black feminine in particular for me, the more I'm able to let go of that and say, yeah, I really need to connect with this person's divine being and to allow other, because I, I feel like, you know, growing up, we were always taught you hold on to your beliefs and you, and everything else is wrong and everything, you know, but the more I connect with a healing version of my spirituality, the more I'm able to say, I, I want to know what you think. And I want to know how you experience God. And I want to know how I can support that and also be nourished by that because we all have these. So it's gender, it's race, it's culture. It's, you know, <laughs> the different the yes. different ways and, and to over oversimplify the whole idea about you know religion and spirituality in the end um is what a very close friend of mine um says all the time all is love nothing else matters all is love if you love unconditionally you have everything and you don't need anything but love so that will eliminate all the needs all the wants um all the the judgment pretty much and the fear yes i feel like i'm more likely to judge and try to control other people when i feel when i experience fear <laughs> but the more i can connect with that love that love of the universe love of the black madonna you know for me just being with a black madonna helps me see that 
the world is a safer place. Like if I can trust that God sees me, knows me and cares about me, the world is automatically a safer place. And so I don't need to control what everybody else is doing out of my fear. I can actually just say, okay, how can I unconditionally love this person and also practice acceptance? Like this is what it is. I don't need to always be in resistance. (laughs) Yes, I mean, love transcends any boundaries of race, geography, anything. So if we can, and he has a very good example. He said, look, if someone will kill my son now, the way I can prove that I am a highly spiritual human being is to go and embrace, hug the killer and Mm -hmm. tell him that I forgive him. That for me, he said, Mm -hmm. is the ultimate um, threshold that I evolved spiritually. And that sounds very Palestinian, like a lot of the Palestinian mystics and activists that I know, you know, this idea where it's like, no matter what anyone's doing to me, I still want to hold love for them in my heart. Um, And oftentimes that love helps us to speak truth to power too, you know, but do it in a way that doesn't eat us alive, (laughs) you know? And so, yeah, it's true. And that, and that's, you know, that's, that's mysticism to me, right? That's, that's being able to see beyond what is. And that's being able to connect so much with love that even when life is legitimately scary, the sound of love drowns out the clang of fear. Yes, nicely, nicely said, yes. <clears throat> and I think for me, like that's what connecting to the Black Madonnas has helped me do because finding myself in the divine helps me to see that it's going to be okay. I might not know how it's going to be okay, you know, but it's somehow going to be okay. And um, therefore I can act in a general, in a generous way towards people. And also if I can't be generous, like I am resentful and I am spiteful and all those sorts of things, I can still offer myself self-compassion and know that her love is big enough too. And so I don't need to do shame on myself. And then if I'm less likely to shame myself, I'm less likely to shame others. (laughs) It's like this. um, Yeah. To me, I've always tried to connect spirituality and activism because I'm passionate about both, but that's a very mystical connection. I think you can't just do, it's not algebraic. It's not just X times Y equals. It's like kind of, somehow connecting to abundance on a level that gives you the spaciousness to see the, see the sacredness of others while also the power and the courage to stand up for what you believe in. So it's like not passive, it's not conflict avoidant, but it's also being able to act for justice from a place of love and not fear. Yes, that's important if we can um stay unbiased which is again sometimes very hard but if we go back as you said to that place of of love um, those boundaries can can blur and we can see everything which uh, with, with focus and uh, uh unbiased um approach yeah that would be amazing yeah yeah and that that's very 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 hard to do because we're so primal in the way that we think about groups and who matters and especially if we feel like we've been harmed which many of us have so i'm not saying it's all in our heads or anything but i i for so long did activism from basically just from a self-righteous sense right like look at what these people are doing to us black people you know, and that was just my, and that motivated me for a while, (laughs) but then I just burned out because you can't just power your entire work on resentment and self-righteousness. And so now I, I can see very clearly, yeah, these like horrible wrongs that have been done and are being done black people like myself. And also recognizing the ways in which I've been complicit in other people's pain and also seeing the sacredness of all of us, or at least not perfectly, but you know what I mean? Trying yeah. to, trying to, and in hoping to 
honor that sacredness as I interact with people, even while I'm speaking truth and saying this is unacceptable or these amends need to be made or these reparations need to be made. Yeah. So this very, yeah, it's like you can't just read a book on this. <laughs> no, you have to, to experience it for sure. And in the end, you cannot, in my opinion at least, you cannot teach religion or spirituality if you don't experience yourself because then you just take a book or uh, what was written in a book and you try to explain it without fully understanding it because you didn't experience it so that's why a lot of priests consider what they are doing a job and they don't go fully into the the depth of the the teachings they are being taught in a certain way and as you said before they don't ask questions they don't um, try to go beyond what the school taught them. And that's um, sad for themselves because I don't think they will evolve spiritually uh, at a level where they're going to be able to connect with divinity. Uh, and then it's bad for the, uh, those attending uh, the Sunday um, uh, events because they don't get the benefits of the, those teachings as well. So, yeah, I can I can say amen to that because I taught at seminaries where we were training, you know, the next generation of pastors. <laughs> and I know, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on um, knowledge and not a lot of emphasis on understanding and um, transformation. Yeah, yeah. At the school that I taught at people had to take tons and tons of like, you know, Greek, Hebrew, Old Testament, New Testament, which that's not bad. I'm not against that, but they hard, they didn't have to take much in the way of spiritual formation. You know, how do I personally connect with the divine? What does that look like? What are my own practices? And so then, yeah, they can't pass that on to anyone. And I know I wasn't really taught that either. Um, although I will say one of the things that I really love about the Pentecostal upbringing that I had was that um, Pentecostals tend to believe that the Holy Spirit is active in doing things. So people pray for healing, people pray for miracles. You know, it's not just seen as something that happened way back when. And I think I wouldn't have been able to go on my Black Madonna pilgrimage if I didn't have that in my spiritual lineage. This idea that I can actually show up at a Black Madonna and expect something to happen, you know, because a lot of Christians who don't have that theology, God is kind of dead. You know, it's like, well, how do I encounter God? I read the Bible. Whereas I was taught, you can just start talking to God, you know, and you can expect God to talk back to you in some way. So I literally would go up to these Black Madonnas <laughs> in these like tiny villages and just start talking to them and then trust what I felt coming, the transmission coming back, you know, and take that really seriously and then also trust that the people around me that I was meeting were that, you know, she, that Black Madonna was speaking to me through those people and through the animals and um, that sort of imagination and, it, and integrating that with my spirituality is, feels like a gift for my lineage. Yes. And, and I can tell you that um, praying or singing to God, to divinity, to the creator and expecting something back um, it's real. I mean, people all over the world get together and their vibration, their mental um, prowess and, um, you know, the, um, yeah, the, the vibration itself will create, will manifest the healing, will manifest that answer which will come back um, to you through synchronicities. And I think right now even scientists can, can do that and they will... Uh, they, they wrote books about this type of uh, interaction through sound, vibration, and, uh, and mental prowess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that there can be scientific explanations and also, you know, just anecdotal evidence, you know, and yet it's still hard for us to believe. <laughs> you know? yeah. I think there's a part of humans that we want to kind of be able to control everything or something, you know, because it's like, yeah, uh, Dr. Cleveland, um, some of my previous guests were of uh, African descent, and they were born in Africa under, you know, Catholicism, 
But their elders told them to go out in the world and become the bridge to the white brother because the white brother doesn't understand them. So they still kept the food into the local tradition and they got initiated through the, the villages, uh, the, the, the village uh, customs and everything else. So I'm wondering if you had the, the chance to go back to your genealogy tree and see yeah. what your ancestor um, divinated before. Yeah, I have not personally been to West Africa and that's where most of my lineage goes back to. Um, the closest I would say to doing um, that particular type of ancestral work is um, going and spending quite a bit of time with Condomble priestesses in Brazil who have a mix of Christianity and West African um, spirituality. And that was like, oh gosh, that was the closest I have felt to being in a spiritual community that really resonated with my own um, spiritual energies. So I'm definitely really interested in doing more of that work. Um, and then also just general like ancestral reclamation. Unfortunately, because of the colonial enslavement period, my family is really disconnected from our West African roots. And also um, all, all, of, all four of my families, you know, grandparents' families um, were go way it back into enslaved times. And so as far as I can see historically, our families have been Christian because we came to the US so long ago forcibly and then we're on plantations for several generations mm -hmm. before emancipation. So I am really interested in connecting with what the roots are beneath that but I'm like many African Americans where it's just like I don't know who those people are and I don't even know exactly where in West Africa my family is from and <laughs> yeah that's not a good feeling for sure yeah it's not and it but it's also um for me what that has done is opened up possibilities for me to connect with um spiritual ancestors so who are the people um whose energies I wanna call on. And that can go beyond the people that were biologically related to me. And that's possible. I can tell you that that's possible um, because I attended a workshop which um, focused on um, connecting with your ancestors and even with future ancestors. Or The, the term was a little bit, uh, fuzzy but something like that it, it's it's possible they are yeah, out there you can connect with your whole lineage exactly yes. yeah yeah and i've definitely been involved in some contemplative practices that yeah i love i love connecting with descendants or like the lineage moving forward too um because i think you know i i feel like i'm most whole when i see that i'm not just one drop in this like time and space continuum, but I have a connection, whether that's spiritual or biological or both. Um, and I'm part of a movement of people who are hopefully healing as much as we can and passing on that healing <laughs> to the next yes. generation. And you said something very important that you feel that we are more holy when we are in the spiritual realm than in a physical one. Mm, did I say that? Almost like that. Oh, almost. <laughs> I just twisted the words a little bit. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I think, well, I, I think what I would say to that is um, we, I feel most whole when the spiritual and the physical are integrated. And when Father Sky God <laughs> is eliminated, and the sky is a warm and inviting place. And so God can be transcendent and God can also be eminent in my body and God can be in my thoughts, but God can also be in my feelings and God can be in the earth and God can also be in the cosmos. And so to me, um, the more I've gotten connected to the divine feminine eminence, the more I've also longed for what we would consider to be the masculine transcendence because it's both and. And so I love um, thinking, yeah, I got about the oneness 
of it all. And even um, in some of my like somatics and embodiment work, we've been talking a lot about how can we bring our bodies into conversations with our thoughts? And that's kind of how I feel about spirituality. How can I bring my spirituality into conversation with what's happening physically in the world and vice versa? Yeah, and the reason I said that we are more holy in the, in the spiritual realm because um, all the, the worries and the attachments which we have in the material world vanish up there or when we are there. Um, we are only energy over there. Um, so that's why we might feel holier. Yeah, I think I think what just off the top of my head, that's really interesting. And I'm wondering if for me, they don't vanish, but they're held by the love in that space. And so I might still have my like concerns about global warming or about genocide in the Yemen or, you know, but there's a spaciousness with which I can hold those concerns so that that's not the only reality. And then I'm empowered to go and do something about that reality. (laughs) But it's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to to think more about that. I appreciate you bringing that up because I'm curious. Um, And I think I do know some like, I I can talk more with my Buddhist friends too because I feel like they would have a take on that that might be similar to yours. Yes. Dr. Cleveland, I want to ask you something which is very sensitive these days and um, is about this walk culture. And the society tries to eliminate words such as mother and breast milk and replace them with birthing parent and human milk. Is that a threat to the the feminine, to the mental sanity of each of us and the balance of the male, female we mentioned at the beginning of the conversation? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so personally. Um, I, I believe that the feminine and the masculine are at their most whole and most um, confident when they're able to acknowledge that other gender expressions exist. And so I think part of the concern, particularly around trans folks who may or may not um, uh, be labeled masculine or feminine, um, creating space and honoring their, um, their reality, their existence, seeing them. So going back to the God who sees me, but going and saying, yeah, you're seen too. I'm going to participate in that being seen by refraining from these gendered notions that exclude you. I think that I'm most feminine when I do that because I'm able to practice a femininity that's not only concerned about my experience of femininity, I'm able to include other people in that experience. And so, I mean, I think the sometimes with justice movements, we can get caught up in the labels or the like um, what I would call the, um, the sort of icing on the cake and then ignore the deeper issues, the deeper issues being that because masculinity has become so toxic, femininity has been drowned out. And when femininity is drowned out, because toxic masculinity can only make space for itself, it can't affirm trans, gender non-conforming. I mean, the whole spectrum of, of identities that exist. So that's, 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 that would be my take on it. Um, we really need to address toxic masculinity and its inability to make space for all of us. But, Thank yeah. you. Yeah, you're welcome. Let's turn to some of your programs. Do you run anything in particular yeah. these days? Yeah, we are gearing up to start a, a virtual Black Madonna pilgrimage starting in just a couple of weeks. And so um, I'm really excited to take people virtually back to all the Black Madonnas in my book so we can have opportunities to connect with them on a much deeper level than we um, than we were able to do by just reading the book. So that's exciting. And I have a wonderful newsletter, The God is a Black Woman, a newsletter that goes out every month and that's free. And so I'd love for people in your community to connect with that and stay in touch. We'll be offering hopefully in the fall or beyond in-person events too as the world starts to shift 
a little bit of that safe. So thank you. Has the book uh, been released or uh, it's up uh, and coming now? The book. The book. The the God um, yeah. is uh, God is Black Woman. Yeah, yeah. it came out in February, so it's available everywhere. It should be available to most people at this point. Yeah. Perfect. Um, yeah. Dr. Cleveland, uh, we are approaching the end of the, the interview. Any final thoughts? No, it's just that it's been a really, it's been a joy to be here. And I hope people um, go out and read the book and also start thinking about in a deeper way, just finding their own divine that sees them. So, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. And to my uh, viewers, thank you for uh, watching, share it, like it, support me on uh, patreon.com slash Claudia Morgan. Get a free copy of my book and you visit my website. And until next time, love and gratitude.